Bernard Cregan Stark, the 11th Lord of Winterfell and Warden of the North, the Wolf of the North, he was called, until he was called the Old Man of the North. He loomed as eternal as the Wall and Winterfell, at least compared to the lifespan of the usual Stark Lord or person. And beyond that, he has a claim to be the most important of them all, given that long lifespan and the massive impact he had on the history of Westeros. Yeah, us. Hmm. (laughs) Not just in the North, but across the Seven Kingdoms, due to his role in the Dance of the Dragons. But that part he played, as major as it was in the dance, came when he was only about 22 or 23 years old. And we just told you he lived long enough to get a second nickname referring to his age. (laughs) So... He outlived the young king he helped get settled, then the next Targaryen king, and the next, probably the next after that. Some of it gets a little hazy towards the end as we get into the periods where all eyes were on the south or where the histories have not yet been revealed in great detail to us. As always, though, even with partial information, there's an awful lot we know, a lot more we can infer, and a few other things we can throw in here and there, like details and, you know, jokes. He married three times, had 10 children, an unknown but large number of grandchildren, saw countless winters and battles, and outlived almost all the peers of his youth and many of the younger members of his own family. He's featured in some major enduring historical mysteries and pops up in some eyebrow-raising spots within the main pages of Song of Ice and Fire. I think if we polled the entire book-reading fandom, somehow, I don't know how we would ever do that, but if we could, In my opinion, he'd be a favorite in the top five Starks of all time category. And there are reasons, lots of them, why people feel so strongly. We'll get into all those reasons and more on this episode of History of Westeros podcast. You know, I could have started this by saying, pack it up, pack it in. Let me prig in. You'll notice I I started cringing because I knew that was coming. Before I said it, she started cringing. Yeah, because I tested it out on her this morning and she cringed then. And I love a pun. Which should have... And that's not a good pun. (laughs) Should have been my clue not to... Anyway. (laughs) I hope it made some of you laugh, though. It's so bad that Sean isn't here today. (laughs) (laughs) That's how bad it is. It just blew him right out. He's gone. Yeah. All the way in California. (laughs) No, we, we... New Sean wouldn't be here today. We picked a spoilery topic, so there will be some spoilers in this one. Of course, when I say spoilers, I mean spoilers for House of the Dragon. If you've already read Fire and Blood, then there's no spoilers at all. So for most of you, this isn't spoilery, but that warning gets thrown in there just in case. Shout out to our good friend, Nina. Check out goodqueenalley.tumblr.com and don't just check it out. Submit a question. She, a lot of her blog posts are responses to excellently asked questions. Well, they're not always excellently asked. Maybe she doesn't answer those, but (laughs) the good questions get answered. And I imagine if you're coming from here as a listener to ask a question, it will be a good one. This episode was voted on by patrons. We did put up a, what episode should we do while Sean's gone that fills feature spoilers poll? And this is what was chosen. Next week is the free city of Kohor. Yes. Working our way gradually through the nine free cities. We've done lease. We've done, did we do, have we only done Lys? We did Lorath. That's Uh, right. We did Lorath. That's what we're going to think of. Okay. Yeah. If the episode ends and you want to stay immersed in history of Westeros, Essos, all that, we've got you covered with suggestions for topics related to this one. Like I said, at the end. Also at the end is the answer to this trivia question. 
What title was held by the person who told Cersei the definition of Balancar? Bonus, if you know their full name. It's good to cover topics like this and others before they hit television because that will forever change how we see the character. Even if we disagree with the portrayal or particularly love it, if we, even if we think it's, they nail it, it's still going to change what we see. We're going to picture whoever the actor is. Some of us will anyway. Maybe hear their voice. It's good to have a record of our perspective before, in other words. So before that gets set. Not that there's anything wrong with what's coming, but still I'd like to separate the two to keep our ducks in a row. Before we really dig deep, I think, you know, you want to separate those canons to not confuse them. It's, it's really about not being confused and keeping it straight. It isn't about, you know, one's bad and the other's good, although that is a valid opinion. It's just not one I hold. <laughs> and to enjoy the characterization more by appreciating the book version through a deeper understanding. I think when you see this character on TV, you will appreciate him more if you know more about him. If you understand the book character really well, seeing him on TV unless they do a really bad job, is going to more likely enhance the experience. Especially this character. It's a Stark, after all. A really important one, semi-legendary. Only semi-legendary because maybe not enough time has passed for him to be fully legendary. You know, there's not a exactly a rule book on when someone becomes a legend. <laughs> but he's only Ned's four times great-grandfather I counted right. So not that far back. But that said, if we had a fuller picture of Cregan, and we should get more in Blood and Fire and possibly talk of him and say the She-Wolves of Winterfell or elsewhere, maybe, this wouldn't be a single topic episode, I don't think, or a single episode topic. I think it would take more than one episode. But given the information we do have, it's more than enough for just one. You saw how much time we spent on Aemon, after all, and there's huge gaps in Aemon the Dragon Knight's life, too. And Cregan lived a lot longer than Aemon. We don't get much in the way of physical descriptions, except for the classic stark gray eyes that reminded Septon Eustace of a winter storm. I almost think that he probably wasn't a really big or really small guy, because that might have stood out, especially given how much he dominated people, if he was also able to dominate them with his size, or be in spite of it, then that would be worth a mention. So maybe he just didn't have a particularly noteworthy look, other than those eyes, I suppose. Here's the first mention of him in Brand 7 of Game of Thrones. That one is John Stark. When the Sea Raiders landed in the east, he drove them out and built the castle at White Harbor. His son was Rickard Stark, not my father's father, but another Rickard. He took the neck away from the Marsh King and married his daughter. Theon Stark's the real thin one with the long hair and the skinny beard. They called him the Hungry Wolf because he was always at war. That's a Brandon, the tall one with the dreamy face. He was Brandon the shipwright because he loved the sea. His tomb is empty. He tried to sail west across the Sunset Sea and was never seen again. His son was Brandon the Burner because he put the sunset, oh, because he put the torch to all his father's ships in grief. There's Roderick Stark, who won Bear Island in a wrestling match and gave it to the Mormonts. And that's Torrin Stark, the king who knelt. He was the last king in the north and the first lord of Winterfell after he yielded to Aegon the Conqueror. Oh, there, he's Cragen Stark. He fought with Prince Aemon once and the Dragon Knight said he'd never faced a finer swordsman. 
They were almost at the end now, and Bran felt a sadness creeping over him. Almost at the end. I wonder if you can read that different way, like an end to the Starks or just an end to his own life. Or this is before he knows his father has passed, so it might just be foreshadowing that. Nina doesn't think it's too deep there. It's just the end of the rows of, of statues. But, you know, your mileage may vary. More to the point, though, we don't exactly know when Cregan died. His nickname contained the word old, as I said. So mm, we have enough other information to get close enough to say he died roughly 90 to 110 years before Bran was born. He lived at least till the year 183, probably longer than that. And Bran was born in, what is it, one or 291? So Torrin and Cregan are the only non-kings that get mentioned here, by the way. That's maybe noteworthy. Here's the list after Cregan, by the way. We've got Jonal, Barthigan, and Brandon. Barthigan. Barthigan, yeah. It's a real Jothro Barlorian style thing. <laughs> Those are Cregan's sons. Rodwell and Baron are Brandon's sons. Donor and Willem were Baron's sons. And then Willem was the father of Edwile, who was the father of Rickard, who was the father of Ned. Now, let me refer back to the joke she just made. If y'all watch the show Party Down, they Don't have explain a, it. No, you're they, fine. They have a character named Joffro Barlorian. It's a fictional movie character. It's not actually in the show. They're just referring to this character. Joffro Barlorian. Colonel Joffro. Colonel Joffro. <laughs> and his full name is Joffreton Barlorian. Now, Barlorian sounds like a mashup of Baratheon and Targaryen. Barlorian. Targaryen. <laughs> like, and Joffro is just like Joffrey, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, Ashai and I were, were falling out over that name. <laughs> we heard that. <laughs> Good Joffro. Party Down's a great show, by the way. We can be pretty sure Baron died around the year 212 because of what George teased about the She-Wolves of Winterfell. Maybe it was a couple years later, but it was roughly in that range, not long after that or in that general one or two years around that. Meaning Cregan ruled roughly as long as five or six Stark Lords would on average. <laughs> so he's easily the longest Stark Lordship we know of at least 60 years, possibly 70. Yeah, the longest he could have lived was to 92. Yeah, he did not live into the third century. He definitely died before the end of the century. He was born in 108, so the latest he could have lived to is about 93, 92. There are kings with stories of crazy long reigns, like Edric Snowbeard, who supposedly was well over 100 when his great-grandson or grandson drove the raiders out of the white knife. And of course, Brandon the Builder, the stories about his life are crazy, but we don't really need to compare the super ancient ones because those stories aren't well attested. They're, they're more likely to have been exaggerated. And if they refer to a time where mad, more magic was in play, then it's not really fair to compare it to the non-magical ones. Yeah, Old Man of the North. When did he get that name? That's something we don't know. So I divided the episode basically into three parts. We've got the Wolf of the North. Then we're going to have the Black Alley era when he's married as his second wife. And perhaps the one he was married to the longest. And then the Old Man of the North is the last section. And we don't know when one ends and the other begins. So we're just kind of guesstimating. It's funny to think about though, like what counts as old? I mean, in this context, he could have been... When he was 49, he had been Lord of Winterfell already 31 years, which in Westeros 
seems like a really long time. So you can seem old just because of how long you've been in place. Like, man, that guy's been Lord forever, it feels like. But yeah, he's not he might, actually as old as you might think. And he might have gone gray or silver early too with so much stress in his life. Yeah, all that winter. Because as we'll see here, there's a lot of... I mean, there's just a lot of burden on any Lord, but Stark Lords in particular have the burden of frequent winters. And there were some, at least one particularly nasty winter that he had to face. He also had to face civil war, not just the dance, but on his own side. And well, we'll get to all that. It's, it's quite interesting. And the second mention of Cregan is also interesting. It's also in Brand 7, but a Clash of Kings, not a Game of Thrones. It's like Cregan time is <laughs> Brand 7. Here's the quote. When the shadows moved, it looked for an instant as if the dead were rising as well. Lyanna and Brandon, Lord Rickard Stark, their father, Lord Edwile, his father, Lord Willem and his brother, Artos the Implacable, Lord Donner and Lord Baron and Lord Rodwell, one-eyed Lord Jonal, Lord Barth and Lord Brandon, and Lord Cragen, who had fought the Dragon Knight. On their stone chairs, they sat with stone wolves at their feet. This was where they came when the warmth had seeped out of their bodies this was the dark hall of the dead, where the living feared to tread. Never really noticed that rhymed. I know. This was the dark hall of the dead, where the living uh, feared to tread. <laughs> Certainly the dead rising bit sounds like foreshadowing of nothing else. Maybe Cregan's spirit will be one of those that we see. As an aside, one difference here, and to the point of closer to the end, <laughs> yeah, that's this is a little more what we might expect to see at the end of the series or near the end of the series is the, something in the crypts, the rising of the dead or it being used as a tunnel for people to come through or something. Anyway, that's not directly related to Cregan, though it, it would be interesting if his tomb was one of the ones that we see involved in some way. So in both those quotes, we have the mention of him fighting the Dragon Knight, which in our Dragon Knight episode, we struggled to place. No one knows when that happened. We have maybe a few more guesses here in this episode, and we'll rehash briefly the ones that we already made. But you know what we've said many times, more than twice, about George R. R. Martin telling us things twice. So he mentioned Cregan fighting the Dragon Knight in book one, and then again in book two. Hmm. Could be relevant, could be. Now, Cregan's story contains several elements that touch on central elements from A Song of Ice and Fire perhaps helping us frame them or contextualize them further and theorize a bit more too. Let's go to his early life. He was born in the year 108, which is why I could guess he got no older than 92-ish because he didn't rule in the third century. He had a father named Rickon, a mother named Gillian Glover. He had an unnamed younger brother who died in the year 119, which means he was at most 10 years old, could have been only four or five, something like that. That would most likely pretty safely have a strong impact on Cregan growing up, having lost his brother. Might be why he's kind of a hard ass. <laughs> One thing we'll see throughout this is that he doesn't have much a sense of humor, very serious guy, which is fairly common for Starks. But having lots of serious things happen when you're young, lots of adult things happen, things that you shouldn't have to deal with as a child, are also very prominent here. For example, that, while losing his brother. But more than that, according to Mushroom, he had a bastard half-sister named Sarah Snow, who is probably such a big story and topic that we'll handle it separately. But his childhood friend, Aranori, eventually became his wife. So that's cool. The toughness he exudes might be common enough for a Stark, 
But I kind of wonder, you know, if he had these, he has the Hill Clan in-laws, you know, the Norris are the Hill tribes. So I don't know, that feels like maybe some influence from the tougher side of the North. Maybe that helps explain why he is the way he is or was. Or maybe that was, Nina says, maybe the other way around. Maybe Cregan found kinship with them because he was already kind of like that. And that's why he gravitated towards them. A little of both, perhaps. When you have similar like-minded folk, it's hard to say one did all the work to establish that friendship in the first place. So I'm guessing it was a little of both. His best friend was Lord Kerwin or Sirwin, however you want to say it, who was perhaps not Lord when they first met. Neither was Cregan. Castle Sirwin's only a day's ride from Winterfell. So this one makes a lot of sense just from a proximity standpoint. This is another younger Lord that I figure a lot of young Stark boys and girls have been friends with the boys and girls of House Kerwin over the centuries. Just you making friends with people who are nearby. It makes sense. Like, people in your village, etc. It's tempting, given that personality description so far, to put him on the, to try to put him on, rather, the Ned Brandon spectrum, which is the talkative, energetic, wild, fiery wolf versus the more reserved, kind of colder, but, you know, still intense Ned version. He's more maybe, maybe most similar to Alaric, Stark, who we see through the eyes of earlier Fire and Blood when he meets with Alisan and Jaehaerys. And we compared Alaric to Stannis. And I'd say that's fair to compare Cregan to Stannis in a lot of ways. But without the chip on his shoulder. <laughs> because Stannis was second born. And, you know, that was always a big deal looking up to Robert and all that. Cregan didn't really have that. But one thing they have in common is the being an intimidator and liking when people stand up to them. Kind of like he walks around intimidating people as a test to see, all right, if anyone here can stand up to me and match my energy, then that's a good person or someone I'm going to actually like and maybe befriend or at least respect. Because I know I'm intimidating. If you can stand up to me, hey, <laughs> you're, you're special. I mean, that's kind of how Stannis is. He's got that pride. And because he's got that pride and he knows he's intimidating, he, he actually recognizes when people can handle his withering presence. And I think Cregan has that without probably the physicality, though. Because Stannis is tall. It's easy to forget that because of the TV show and all that. But Stannis is like a thinner version of Robert without as many muscles. But still very tall and big. Very big guy. You know, very muscular. Just not, not Robert muscular. So it's pos possible maybe Cregan wasn't very popular when he was young. Though I kind of feel like a lot of Starks would have liked that presence, having a tough kid like that, you know, maybe something that's what's needed. A lot of Starks or a lot of rather Northern Lords might have been like, when this kid's Lord, we'll be in good shape. You know, someone tough-minded like that, they may have appreciated that. But who knows? It's a big, it's an open question. We're making a few assumptions here. Moving ahead to the dance of the direwolf. We described it in the episode Under the Dragons, 50 to 129. So check out that for the fuller story. Just a quick recap here. Rickon, his father, passed in 121. And Rickon's brother, Bernard, became regent because Cregan was only 13. Now, when Cregan turns 16 in 124, Bernard's like, nah, I think I'm going to keep ruling. He doesn't relinquish it. Our best guess is ambition. There doesn't seem to be some sort of compelling threat. Might be a reason like, oh, the wildlings are coming. We need to have someone, an adult in charge. But even winter doesn't seem to be an excuse. We'll come back to that in just a minute as to why I'm quite sure winter wasn't a problem here. 
Craigan was still unmarried, so he didn't have an in-law house to help him, though he may have already had that connection to the Norries. They may have already sort of expected him to marry her or were hoping for it. They may have already been allies at this point, or they may have seen it as an opportunity. They're like, all right, well, the young lord is being held out of his seat. If we help him out, we'll get rewarded. Something like that could have happened. Bernard, on the other hand, was married to the Karstarks. His wife was Margaret Karstark. So they may have thought themselves more suited or more stark, more purely stark because of that. Bernard's sons may have had a special sort of pride being both stark and Karstark. I don't know if that's a thing. Just something I'm throwing out there. But something I believe we didn't mention in the Under the Dragon episodes was the presence of at least one more Stark branch out there. Maybe I did mention it. But eventually, Lenara Stark will enter the story. And she's a descendant of Brandon the Boisterous, who was the second Lord of Winterfell after the king who knelt. So a ways back. But they still would have been around in this time because obviously Lenara doesn't come around for quite a while still. So what did this branch of the family do during this time? They probably took Cregan's side because what would they gain by siding with Bernard? Bernard would, would make them second fiddle or third fiddle or maybe eliminate them because if he's an ambitious guy, he would be thinking like an ambitious guy does, which is expecting everyone else to be like him. And if he's willing to usurp, then he would expect other people might try to usurp him. So he might try to remove all other potential claimants. On the other hand, he didn't murder Cregan. I mean, that would have been really bad from Northern Values' perspective, being a kinslayer. Nina guesses they probably took Cregan's side, though, because again, you know, helping the, the actual lawful claimant is generally the morally upright thing to do. And even if we don't think they did it on moral grounds, well, again, there'd be the rewards and just Northern Values. They're a little more dependable in cases like this than perhaps the South. If maybe only a little, though. Again, the Serwins probably took Craigan's side too, thanks to that friendship. It would be real interesting if they didn't. Both the young lords were against their father or their uncle and father or whoever. <laughs> Whatever took place in 126, Craigan managed to reclaim his lordship, had Bernard and his three sons imprisoned, almost immediately marries Aranori. Again, maybe that implies their help was prominent, not just present. And both the Glovers as well, maybe uh, the Glovers and Norris rather may have helped because the Glovers were, after all, Cregan's mother's family. It might, have been, it might have been a really interesting sort of east-west division. You got the Glovers on the west and the Karstarks on the east. And yeah, maybe uh, Nina says neither side wanted to be left out in the cold if the other side won. Uh, now, if Aranori was a warrior... It would be kind of fitting given just his personality and he later falls for Black Alley Blackwood, who definitely was a warrior, that Nina brings that up in the Hour of the Wolf episode. By the way, Hour of the Wolf episode that we did with Nina as a guest, not just with her notes, although her notes alone are substantial. It's even better when she's present. So that's an episode we did back in 2019. For that reason, we're not going to go too deep into the Hour of the Wolf because we've already covered it and there's so much else to say about Cregan, but more on that when we get to it. Yeah, I can really picture Bernard's side Kind of like bringing Stannis back into it, underestimating the Hill Clans, which the Boltons did as well in, in this case. In A Song of Ice and Fire, we see Stannis go, what the, are you kidding me at first? And then John ex- describes it and Stannis is like, okay, 3,000 men and all I got to do is make nice and they're tough, you say? Like hill fighter guys? Well, that sounds great. Yeah. So, I mean, Stannis is an outsider 
So it's a little more understandable that he would underestimate or even be unaware of these fellows. Didn't take much to convince him that they were tough, strong fighters to have on his side. Bernard might, is more likely to already know that, but it's, there's a chance he's still underestimated or that they were a factor in general. So Glovers, Norries, maybe other Hill Clans, maybe the entirety of the Hill Clans were on Cregan's side. Now, it may not have even come to war. It may not have come to violence. I mean, after all, Cregan and his sons were just imprisoned. There's no talk of a fight between them. Maybe it was done bloodlessly, but who knows? One other house that would be interesting to see would be the Locks. The Lysa Locke was wife to Benjamin Stark, who was the father of both Rickon and Bernard. So this was a divide between those two sides of the family. So the Locks may have played it neutral or decided with the, the proper claimant. What happened to Bernard and his sons? Well, we don't know. The wall seems not unlikely. Cregan was a friend of the watch, which is certainly typical for a Stark. Maybe he kept one of them around, though, because, you know, you got to have a Stark in Winterfell. And if Cregan's the only one, if he sends all of his other kin to the wall, well, on the other hand, we spoke about this other branch that Lenara Stark will eventually emerge from. Maybe that was sufficient to have Stark's in the back, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, Aranori dies in 128, delivering a son whom Cregan named after his own father, Rickon. Yeah. So let's check the weather. I talked about why we could be sure Cregan, or rather why Bernard, couldn't use winter as an excuse for holding on to Cregan's uh, lordship. And in general, the behavior and policies of the Starks and the North factor in winter more so than any other region. So we need to keep it in mind if we're going to try to figure out why they did certain things at certain times and or not, why they didn't do certain things at certain times. I mean, it's long been suspected that, for example, the reason there's no word of them in the Blackfire, first for Blackfire Rebellion, was maybe it was just winter. <laughs> you know, that could have kept them busy. But there's other reasons. There's plenty of other reasons, potentially. But that's one of the easiest ones to throw out there as a guess and one of the more likely ones to land. In this case, it's specifically relevant because the North knew a long winter was coming prior to the Dance of the Dragons. When Jason Luke left for those diplomatic missions in 129, it was already known that autumn was, quote, well advanced. It was part of why the storms outside Storm's End were so bad. Furthermore, they knew it would be a big one because as we know, winter works kind of like a pendulum. The seasons are, the longer the summer, the longer the winter's going to be. The farther it swings one way, the farther it's going to swing the other way back. When winter comes halfway through the war in the year 130, it's going to end up being a six-year winter from 130 to 135. That probably means it was roughly a six-year spring before, maybe five, maybe four, maybe it was shorter, but it would have been a, a longer than usual one to set up a six-year winter. So it probably began right around 124, <laughs> right when Bernard refused to give up the lordship. <laughs> so it's possible that winter was just winding down and he wanted to hang on to it until it was over, but then kept holding it on to it afterwards. But I think there's a very good chance that was a factor in the early part, but could not have been a factor later. So that's worth taking note of. Winter always matters, folks, especially talking about the North. So his nickname became the Wolf of the North. We're not entirely sure when that name came along, but it apparently already existed before he marched south, before he had the Hour of the Wolf and all that. So 
his reputation preceded him, despite his youth. But I suppose overthrowing your uncle when you're a teenager is a pretty good start to your career as a badass. <laughs> In the year 126, 18 years old, Cregan took over Lordship of the North and the Wardenship of the North. So only three years later is when the dance began. By then he was 21, had already lost the love of his life and gained a son, not to mention he already had experience with civil war. So he's done a lot already. Even if he didn't fight in a bloody civil war, because again, we don't know how bloody the Dance of the Dire Wolves even was. And again, that's our title for it, the Dance of the Dire Wolves. We made that up. Even if it did involve blood, it didn't involve dragons, and it took place in the north, where no fighting will take place in the dance. So still a lot of differences, but Cregan would have been more prepared than most, I suppose, if not for winter. Now, I wonder how much of the north took note of the doings in the south. If they knew this was coming, if they predicted it, if... Heck, the Red Kraken, who was even a little younger than Cregan here, a pretty young man, actually a lot younger than Cregan, <laughs> that's it, that said. He knew war was coming. He figured it out. He could tell the greens and blacks were going go to go at each other's throats eventually. And he played his hand accordingly. Now, his was to profit from the Civil War. That's not what Cregan did or probably considered. He may have worried because if there's war in the South and winter is coming, that could screw up their access to food because they buy food from the South in winter very typically. So that could be very worrisome. And they would have an interest in, if they got involved, making sure the war was short. Because, yeah, the longer it drags out, the bigger problems of food supply get exacerbated. I would think the Manderleys, at the very least, would be keeping track of such things. Because they're trading with the, North, with the South you know, every day, like literally. There's ships going in and out of their port and a lot of them are going straight to King's Landing or going to King's Landing via other destinations first or other spots in the South. This is something that their business, their wealth would depend on significantly. So I think they would be paying attention to that. Now, they're not worried about the lives of all the innocents. They're not concerned from you know, a perspective of sympathy or compassion. They're just, yeah, they're worried about trade and keeping their business in place and, and all that, which you can expect that. They might be worried <laughs> that things in the South will go South. So, but it's an interesting question, too, about just general trade policies. If Barrington trades with Lannisport and Barrington goes for the blacks while Lannisport goes green, do they stop trading with each other? I think a lot of it would, but not all of it. I mean, a regular old merchant doesn't fly, fly some flag of allegiance. If you're buying goods in Barrington and selling them in Lannisport, that's probably fine even if there's a war going, because you're not a Barrowton ship or a Landisport ship. You're just a ship. <laughs> they don't know where you're coming from and they probably don't care. But if House Lannister has a deal with House Barrowton or with House Dustin, rather, if Landisport has a deal with Barrowton, that probably ceases. So the deals between the lords and nobles would have to stop vis-a-vis -vis their loyalty to their liege lord, right? And it's possible a lord would order even private merchants to stuff like they'd shut down the ports or they'd do something to prevent deals from happening. After all, that is what happens at Lord's Port when Dale and Greyjoy is preparing to attack the Starks at the beginning of or the middle of a clash of kings there. So it is more than an idle question because it determines not just their war policy in the South, 
but what their expectations are towards what's going on with their other allies. And you might think the Lords of the North could almost effectively ignore what was going on in the South. And that would be true for some of them, and maybe more true the farther north you get. But that would be less true of Cregan because of a number of factors. One, it's his job to make sure the north is doesn't starve. That might mean looking outside. That might mean looking ahead to being prepared for such eventualities. And again, all signs pointed to a long, nasty winter. And that's why he took so long to show up for the war. It wasn't an excuse. So let's talk about the Winter's Wolves and the Mermen, because they were the first ones to join the war, and Cregan surely signed off on that, if not made the plan specifically. Although not necessarily with the Mermen. We'll get to that here. Cregan's first priority was winter, as we discussed, but as we well know, the onset of winter in the North is synonymous with older winners, older winners, older warriors giving up their lives to give their families a better shot at making it to the next spring. This would be of particular priority given all we said about how long spring had been. The older folk of the North would know what was coming at the end of that long spring for them. They'd be like, all right, this is our last spring. It's going to be time to ride off into battle or go off hunting, in quotes, as we know. That's how they, that's what they call it. So this is a, a big reversal. They're like, hmm, actually, we could go die in the South. That's Actually, dying in battle is a lot more preferable than freezing to death, fake hunting. And it's a chance to represent the North. And this might mean more than you might think. Showing the Southerners what the North is all about, showing them how tough they are, how strong they are. They might still be remembering King Torin marching south and kneeling. Remember how upset the North was after that. A lot of Torin's sons were very frustrated it didn't come to civil war, but from what we hear, it might have. It might have been prevented before it got started. But if certain diplomatic procedures or actions weren't taken, maybe it would have. We know other Northerners left the North, do sellsword company stuff in Essos. So yeah, it was a very unpopular decision. So it probably wasn't forgotten. We're not that long past it. It's only 100 years later, 130, you know, and... And this is 130 years after thousands of years of the status quo. Yeah, hard to forget. So I got to think that this is still an old, especially because the North remembers. <laughs> it's like their thing, right? <laughs> so deployed initially were these Winter's Wolves. Actually, technically, the Manderleys got sent first because Jace met with them first on his way to Winterfell, and they agreed to send some men south. But those men traveled by ship to King's Landing, which meant they were not marching with the Winter's Wolves who went by horse. And by the way, Jace agreed that Joffrey, his younger brother, would marry Manderly's youngest daughter. That's important given other marriage pacts that we'll come back to in a minute. So Manderly Knights and Men-at-Arms went by ship and the Winter's Wolves marched down the causeway through the neck into the Riverlands. Now, what conversations did Cregan have with Roderick Dustin? Is he like, all right, You've been a great man. <laughs> See you later. Like, you know, he's marching off to die. They both know that. Like, what kind of a parting do you have in that moment? It's not like going off to war when you might die. Like, that's because that's normal for war. You might die. This is, you fully expect to die. I mean, this is like a last stand thing, except it's not defense. 
So it's, it is a little unusual to put yourself in that mindset. This is another question I asked back in the Under the Dragon episode. Roddy was known to be a warrior and it was up there in age. What wars did he fight it? I don't know. This had to be something. The Pact of Ice and Fire. Again, this is something that we'll probably discuss fuller later. It's a little big on its own. And not the actual pact so much as the Sarah Snow stuff. Part of it because it's so theoretical. There's so many directions it could go. Naming all the different possibilities, that's where you really find a lot of time gets spent on theorizing. So we'll save that for some other time. The basics, however, is that, well, Jace and Cregan seem to get along, which... You remember set- House of the Dragon? That's what Rhaenyra says to Jace. Similar age to you. He's a young man like you. You guys might get along. Good point. And apparently they did. And there's a couple of other factors they both had. That's one thing they both had in common is being usurped by their uncle. <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, you were being usurped by your uncle? So was I. What's up, bro? According to Munkin, Cregan liked Jace as well because he reminded him of his deceased younger brother. So that would be, that would be a pretty big deal. And of course, all the standard noble activities ensue. Hunting, training together, feasting and drinking. They don't mention hawking. I don't know if they do that <laughs> as much in the North, but a decent chance that happened too. According to Eustace, the Septon, Septon Eustace, keep in mind, Jace tries to convert Cregan to the faith. I'm like, did he? That sounds like BS. <laughs> I don't believe that. Yeah. It's possible. I mean... Again, this is what happens when you see a TV show version. We don't, Jace isn't super fleshed out in Fire and Blood. The Jace of TV does not seem like he would try to convert. Although he did swear on the Faith of the Seven, but still, he was seemed learning Valyrian and all this. Anyway, I don't believe this line from Eustace. I'm a lot more likely to believe Mushroom and this story of Sarah Snow, even though this is a little sketchy too because no one else mentions her. There's a pretty common headcanon fan theory here that I've seen that I don't think the show will go in this direction, but I am partial to a disease, which What's is that? that Jason Cragen really got along. Really got Like, they had a romance. Too. Oh, wow. Okay. By King Cragen Stark, by Black Alley Blackwood, you know, like, if you're saying, like, well, he was married, well, it's like, well, Allie was also by, you know. Yeah, that's true. But there's a lot of uh, shippers out there who do ship Jace and Cragen and who think Sarah was fake and hmm. not real. And I think that's that's, so that's the fake. The fake that's was the fake. she's the stand-in for their relationship. Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah, there's yeah. no, obviously there's no evidence for it, but besides them getting along well, which isn't evidence, it just yeah. opens the possibility. But hey, yeah. that's cool. Hey, yeah, it's certainly possible. Can't, can't uh, yeah. discard it. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see what the show does. Yeah, I agree with you. They won't, they won't likely do that. No, I don't but think I, think, I do think they'll do the Sarah Snow thing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think they will because they've set up so much that Jace knows he's a bastard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so for him to connect with a bastard makes yeah, a lot of sense. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. And then the tragedy that will come from that. And then it sets up, gives Cregan more, more motivation too. Like he's mad at what happened. Like it's, it's a little bit personal for him that this kid he liked that reminded him of his brother was, was killed and gives him more incentive to, to be so harsh. Like later, he's so harsh and unyielding. It might be partly because of a little bit of anger over Jace's death. Yeah, it makes it really tragic when you think about like Kragen with little Aegon like as his hand and like being reminded of like, make, really like makes me very sad to think about. Adds yeah. a lot of tragedy to like deep relationship they had. Yeah, I think there's a lot of pathos here that might be, that the show is probably going to get into it. So there's a lot of ways they could go with it. But yeah, there's a lot of, 
a lot they can do. And I guess a lot of it won't be season two. A lot of it will yeah. be set up in season two and then come to fruition in probably not till season four. But I, I don't imagine they'd write Priggin entirely out of season three, though. They got to have him do something. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Anyway, that's something we'll just wait and see on. So Cregan's father, Rickon, as well, this is important, had sworn to Rhaenyra. He had bent the knee to her when Viserys asked for it back in whatever that was, 105, 106. And of course, the Manderleys already had their deal in place. So the North was very much for the Blacks at this point. Very little consideration seemed to have been given for them to go any other way, despite what the high towers may have thought or hoped for. It might have been, looks like it was kind of wishful thinking there, or maybe just a a line to intimidate the blacks into thinking, hey, the Starks are considering our offer. Like, they probably weren't. <laughs> but he just wanted to say that to, to try to get his way. So Jace does agree to marry his eventual firstborn daughter to Cregan's son, Rickon, who at this point would be about two. That would have been huge had it happened, right? Targaryen blood in the Stark line. That's a princess that was promised, by the way. And Rickon, I suppose, would be a prince who was promised coming the other way. I mean, I think it means a little more when it's a Targaryen. So a princess that was promised seems to be the relevant one here. But hey, both could count. So that's really big deal. So that's, you can see why there's a lot more to this that, that requires exploration. But given how much we have to cover with Cregan's life, 90-some years, we'll, we'll definitely do this one as a standalone. So Cregan sent the Winter's Wolves ahead. There's some 8,000 hoary old warriors <laughs> ready to go. But he also sent a letter promising more. And here's what it said. From Winterfell, Cregan Stark wrote to say that he would bring a host south as soon as he could, but warned that it would take some time to gather his men. For my realms are large, and with winter upon us, we must needs bring in our last harvest or starve when the snows come to stay. The Northmen promised the queen 10,000 men, younger and fiercer than my winter wolves. Well, unfortunately, they did starve when the snows came to stay anyway. I guess it just would have been worse had they not stayed for this. Yeah, because it was a bad winter. Indeed, though, that did occupy him getting all the rest of the men together and getting the harvests in while Roddy the Ruin and his men died gloriously in the South, slaying many times their own losses and inspiring fear in the Southern warriors, which maybe helped pave the way for Cregan's march later. So when that time came, obviously we don't need to cover what happened in the dance. We're just concerned with Cregan right now. And he came down in the hour of the wolf, very late after the battle called the Muddy Mess. Mm -hmm. Down the neck came Cregan Stark, Lord of Winterfell, with a great host at his back. Septon Eustace speaks of 20,000 howling savages and shaggy pelts, though Munkin lowers that to 8,000 in his true telling. Maybe it was somewhere in between. Either way, it was a lot. I don't think they were savages at all. Yeah. <laughs> they may have been wearing shaggy pelts, though. Yeah. And they may have done a little howling. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> so we covered this as well, also, in the Hour of the Wolf episode. We'll, we'll skip over some of it. But let's look at it a big, from a big picture perspective then, since we're not going to get too much into the details of it because it is a, such a big thing. He showed that the Stark keep their word, as they tend to, but reminded the South of that because they may have forgotten. And while the North remembers, the South does not. Winter is their bigger priority. That was also communicated very thoroughly. I mean, if he had come sooner, the Blacks probably would have won. Not that it's his fault. I'm not blaming him. Just saying that had winter been timed differently, (laughs) 
Yeah, that the arrival of that many northern soldiers to fight for Rhaenyra, I mean, that's just it would have been a it would have been a different war, let's put it that way, even if you don't assume that the blacks would have won easily. Some, not me, but you could raise an eyebrow and call the timing of his march very convenient. Now, again, I don't say that. We know winter was real, we know it was severe, but southerners don't necessarily see it that way. They might be like, Look at it. They look at it like an ambitious play. Like this guy waited for all the South to beat itself up, to tear itself to shred, waited for pretty much all the dragons to be dead. And then he marched his army South and went straight for the capital. Without some of the detail about winter and all that other stuff, it might really look like kind of like what Tywin did without the sack, of course. But just wait to see who comes out on top and then jump on their side. <laughs> Right? I mean, to be fair, yes, he sent men well ahead of that, and they did great. But he didn't personally come. So if he's thinking about, if you're looking at it cynically and thinking, well, what a, it really does look like he sent some men to make it look like he was participating, but himself he held back. And then when everyone was all messed up, he came in and seized power. Of course, events after that would prove that he was not after just power. Though he did certainly benefit from marching south and establishing a relationship with the new young king. But to flip it, that's a really cynical take that Southerners may have held, at least for some time, and maybe even after. They can invent excuses as to why he left that aren't friendly to him, that don't take the full context into play. But yeah, looking at it more romantically, Lord Cregan's march erased the shame of King Torin kneeling. They both marched south with huge armies intent on confronting House Targaryen. Neither actually ended up going to war. But to be fair, Cregan was not exactly confronted <laughs> by the same House Targaryen that Aegon had, that, uh, that Torin had. But optics-wise, it could serve to tell the story. Cregan came, he saw, he, well, he didn't conquer, but he wanted to. He wanted to do what Aegon did. He wanted to do more like Aegon than his predecessor Torin. He was like, yeah, let's go on. Let's go attack Casterly Rock. Let's go attack Storm's End. And he seemed serious. It didn't seem like bluster. I mean, you might think it was. I mean, really, who attacks Casterly Rock and Storm's End without dragons? Well, this guy, apparently, this guy. He had them convinced. And me too. I think I'm convinced. He even cited those who thought Aegon I was mad for thinking he could conquer all Western. They're like, you can't do that. This is mad. There's no way you can conquer all those spots. He's like, that's what they said to Aegon. <laughs> They're like, you don't have dragons. It's like, we don't need them. Neither do they. You know, so he wasn't hearing. When he argued to go to war, the concerns about, yeah, but a lot of people will die. That doesn't move him at all. He's like, so what? Justice comes first. And he's like, the war's not over. Did they bend the knee? Did they give back the crown's gold? Aren't there still Targaryen heirs in their possession? How can you say the war's over? The war's over when they bend the knee, not when they say they want peace. So that he was able to have his way because A, he had this much stronger personality. B, he had all his men there and they didn't. <laughs> he had somewhere between eight to 20,000 quote-unquote savages. And it's funny to think about that. We don't see them as savages. But if the South did, then that intimidates them even more. You know, our opinion on that doesn't matter. It's there <laughs> as far as how they perceived it. 
The Northerners were all over King's Landing and the Red Keep. It's, it's never been seen before or since. So many Northerners just everywhere in the South, in the capital, must have blown minds. Here's a nice lengthy quote to describe it. Mm-hmm. In their male shirts and shaggy fur cloaks, their features hidden behind thick tangles of beard, they swaggered through the city like so many armored bears, said Mushroom. Most of what King's Landing knew of Northmen, they had learned from Sir Medric Manderley and his brother, Sir Torin, courtly men, well-spoken, handsomely clad, well-disciplined, and godly. The Winterfell men did not even honor the true gods, Septon Eustace notes with horror. They scorned the seven, ignored the feast days, mocked the holy books, showed no reverence to Septon or Septa, worshipped trees. Two years past, Cragen Stark had made a promise to Prince Jacaris. Now he had come to make good his pledge, though Jace and the queen, his mother, were both dead. The North remembers, Lord Stark declared, when Prince Aegon, Lord Corlys, and the lads bid him welcome. That really does something for me, just hearing him say the North remembers. I felt that, like, yeah. (laughs) He's so serious. He's so intense. Will you explain something in the chat to me? Sure. Joe Magician says, the real question is, did Cragen get the save for his late inning appearance? (laughs) And Guilty Undertaker says, if Cragen got the save, did the lads get the hold or the win? I don't don't understand baseball enough to know exactly what that means. Okay, so yeah, those are, you do know that those are baseball references. Okay, so a win is credited to the pitcher who had the lead when he left the game, assuming the lead is held. Okay. Okay, so they they get the stat called the win. It usually goes to the guy who pitches the longest yeah. in the game, but it changes. The save is the guy who comes in at the end mm-hmm. and finishes the game. Okay. So holds, saves the win, keeps it in play. And then and a, the pitcher who keeps the lead but doesn't finish the game gets a hold. Okay. So, this, so accurate? Yeah. yeah. So that's pretty accurate. Yeah, Cregan Stark came in, got the save for the Blacks, kept, made sure they won. <laughs> mm. Egg on the three was there. Egg on the third was there. And he held, he made sure Egg on the third kept his spot. Made sure no one overthrew him, settled it all. Yeah, it works. It works for baseball metaphor. And baseball season just restarted on Friday or Thursday. So it's timely. Mm. So this reinforces how much Northern honor was at issue. It isn't just about the Torrin stuff. I'm sort of inventing that. I, I'm assuming it's there. I feel strongly about it. The North remembers, you know, this is their attitude. But for sure, they're remembering the promise they made more recently. They definitely pledged to Rhaenyra. They definitely made the deal with Jace. The Pact of Ice and Fire was a nickname given to it by Munkin, but whatever name you call it, it was a, an agreement. And the North keeps its word. That's important to them. I really I love that quote, the armored bears. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know so much. You, you giggled a little. <laughs> I did. I couldn't help myself. Yeah. It's, it's fun to think about how they were like, oh, that's what a Northerner's like. The Manderleys come like, oh, we had heard, you know, this isn't so bad. These Northerners are all right. And they're like, oh, those are the Northerners. That's not at all what we thought. Wow. It gives you an idea of how little the Northerners hung out in the South, at least in groups, you know. A lot of these folk hadn't seen a lot of Northerners. They've only seen a couple at a time or, you know. So he reigned as Hand of the King. And even when Ned did, he didn't bring near as many men with him. So he was there uh, probably only about as long as Ned was. Neither of them held that Hand of the King position for for long. Unlike Ned, Cregan yelled at almost everyone, (laughs) intimidated almost as many, (laughs) whereas Ned was soft-spoken. He only yelled at like, I don't know, Littlefinger and Robert. 
Craig and sentenced a lot of people to death. Ned did that too. Uh, <laughs> most of those took the black, which Craigan was probably cool with because he was said to be a friend of the watch again. And so was Ned. It's almost hilarious how much the lads who are the young lords of the Riverlands that survived the early battles and, and became lords in their own right due to early deaths and such. Mm-hmm. The men, not the lads Yeah, they anymore. were the men. <laughs> he wasn't much older than them. I mean, he's like I said, 22 or 23 during this part. They actually fought in the war. <laughs> he didn't. <laughs> like, they fought in a battle. Like, one of them smashed Boros Baratheon in the face with a spiked mace, right? Black Alley Blackwood shot people with arrows, you know? Kraken didn't kill anyone. <laughs> he marched his army south. He was handling winter, you know, which is hard, but he didn't fight any battles. But they were like, okay, you fine, you win, you know, <laughs> because they were intimidated by him. So that's really, that says a lot. Like this guy who hadn't fought in, a, in, in any of the battles of the war. Now he had fought, apparently. He had overthrown his own uncle. Although even that may not have been war. Either way, it's a great statement on just how intimidating and and forthright and just prominent he was. And he played on, not on like scaring them. He wasn't like, I'm going to kill you. He was just hammered away at what their own values are supposed to be. Like that stuff I said before regarding how can you say the war's over? They still have the crown's money. They still have princesses and other people that have committed crimes that have not answered for it. You can't call it over. Like your honor demands that you keep going. You won one battle and you want to say you're mm-hmm. done? What is that? So they couldn't argue with that <laughs> because he's right. I mean, and I don't mean right like from a cosmic perspective. I mean, he's right by the values that they all commonly profess to hold. So he was basically just a really good lawyer. <laughs> you know, he told them like, look guys, you've already said, you've already agreed with this before. Why aren't you fulfilling it? And so they, yeah, they had to go with it. Aegon III, though, on the other hand, treated him very differently. He didn't apparently come down heavily on him. He wasn't aggressive with him. Apparently they got along. It may have been, eh, it gives off some Ned Brandon vibes. Ned Brand, like his, his son Brand, Because, well, Brand's the only of his sons that we see him have intimate moments with. We see a little with Arya and a little with Sansa with Ned and a little with Bran. We don't ever see Ned really have a moment with Rob or with Rickon or even really with Jon. He did with Jon on TV, but not on the, not on the books. We're told Aegon took to Craig and he liked him. Maybe having this strong presence who wasn't trying to get things out of him. He wasn't trying to exploit Aegon. He wasn't trying to get honors and titles from him, which Aegon, I think, was aware of. From from very early life, he was surrounded by hangers-on, people who were ambitious, people, the period of regency was terrible, right? The whole secret siege and all that business. So he was probably very wary of this from very early on and may have respected Cregan for not trying to do that, for having a different approach to everything, more about settling the war, more focused on ending the conflict and setting the realm back up rather than what can I get out of this, which is how a lot of the lords were treating it. What can I get out of this? The Unwin Peaks, the even Torin Manderley. Yeah. Some more than others, especially Peak, but really, Greg and Stark just came in and might have even seemed refreshing. But there's still fear and xenophobia in play. Maybe even if Aegon Third didn't hold those views, he wasn't afraid or intimidated or prejudiced against Northern culture. 
it had been a long time since any Northern army had come south and had been seen because the, the winter's wolves never like went into a city. They, they were out in battles and such and sure other soldiers encountered them, but they weren't like walking around the streets of King's Landing. They fought and died out in the fields and streams of the Riverlands and the Reach. So there were a lot of rumors about what Craig might do. Mix these rumors with having his army and Northern ambition and not understanding Northern values the way we do. And what you get is a lot of Southerners who were worried about, what is this guy going to do? Is he going to take over? Is he going to install himself? And what did I say before about waiting till the war was basically over before he marched South and how that looks real Taiwan-esque. So you can see why they were worried. There was no sack, like I said, like there was with Tywin, but people might have been worried that there would be. They might have been worried that any minute he might unleash his northerners if he doesn't get what he wants. And what would they be able to do about it? Nothing. Run, maybe. Hide, maybe. That's about it. And there's people that might start such rumors, <laughs> that might fuel such rumors, that fan the flames of such, like a Larry Strong, for example, but not particularly him because he was locked up at this point. Cregan put him right in jail, <laughs> along with the sea snake. He was like, okay, you, you're one of the biggest problems there is. <laughs> he sussed that out right away. <laughs> now, maybe Laris had agents out in the field working on his behalf, but I kind of think it was rats fleeing a sinking ship kind of situation here. Yeah, emphasis on the rats part. Yeah. <laughs> Lads had been talked into marching with Craig and Storm's End and perhaps beyond. And Craig again had imprisoned those two, the Sea Snake and Larry Strong and many others. But things were resolved with diplomacy. Quote, The great lords would have given us another two years of war, the fool declares in his testimony. It was the women who made the peace. Black Alley, the Maiden of the Vale, the Three Widows, the Dragon Twins, twas them who brought the bloodshed to an end. And not with swords or poison, but with ravens, words, and kisses. <laughs> so Cregan didn't even seem to have the diplomacy mindset. It wasn't that he wasn't willing to accept diplomacy. He wasn't really willing to ask. Like he wasn't like, yeah, let's send them a message to say, hey, if you bend the knee, we'll, we'll be done with this. He was like, no, let's just march on them. If they bend the knee then, okay, fine. But screw this letter writing stuff, <laughs> right? But others were like, no, letters work, man. Like letters can do a lot. So let's, let's try this. And the reason women are credited with peace here, despite the sea snake being the one to extend all these offers is actually pretty straightforward. First of all, most of the offers were accepted by ladies ruling in place of their dead husbands because a lot of those husbands died in the dance. And a lot of these ladies were protecting the interest of their firstborn son who was now the Lord but is too young to rule correctly because they're a child. So they're protecting the interests of, this, of their son who probably won't ascend for eight or 10 years or a couple of years. Why would they want to keep fighting? They're looking out for their, the future of their house and their son or, or the rest of their family as well. The Lady of the Veil vale was mentioned there. Maiden of the Veil vale is her other name. She had been in charge since prior to the war, had been a staunch ally, so she was right there with her men in the fighting. Well, not literally. She sent her men and then was right there to help with the peace. The three widows. I forget exactly who the three widows are. One of them is Johanna Westerling. I forget who the other two are. The dragon twins are Bela and Reyna. And, ba and Reyna had Morning, her dragon, who was a, a pink the other two, by young the way, dragon. The other two were Samantha Tarley and Alenda Baratheon. Ah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Little Sam Tarley. Sam Tarley, of course. And Alenda was uh, the, I guess, the wife of Boros. 
Oh yeah, that was one of the that was one of the why like her first husband was Boros and then she married Stefan Connington. So she was okay. a widow twice over, maybe. I don't gotcha. know. But yeah, that was the mother of like all those Baratheon girls that like Aemon saw, gonna, you yeah, know, okay. Maris and Floris mm-hmm. and Ellen and all them. Yeah. Right on. The mama. Yeah, so that that was huge. They're all like, you foolish men, of course we're done with this. <laughs> Let's finally be done with this war. And so Reyna was really important because the dragons were mostly dead. There were still a few left, but none of them were really being controlled by anyone. So Reyna having one looked important because it appeared as though that would eventually be an adult and some Targaryen power be restored there. So Reyna was a pretty big deal and she was one of the ones pushing for peace. Now, Reyna, of course, was more of the softer personality, more diplomatic, courtly. Meanwhile, Bela was aggressive and wilder and that proved useful because Kraken responded to that. Like, Bela got mad and yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Here's where it, one of the pieces of evidence that he has a soft spot for women. Here's a, a one-liner. Mm. Not even the tears of a dragon could melt the frozen heart of Kraken Stark, men said rightly. Yeah, Reyna had moved a lot of people, but not Kraken. But Bela, she grabbed her sword and protested the execution of men that set her free. She's like, look, yeah, they murdered the guards to get me out, but they were on the right side. And I will not stand for you executing them. And she's just waving her sword around in court that she grabbed off a guard. And Craigan's like, I like you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so he has a soft spot for hard women, apparently. <laughs> and so he said, okay, if you like those dogs so much, you can keep them. So just like that, her display of bravery in the face of all this was what moved him, apparently. I mean, according to the maesters, according to the sources. Um, I mean, and mushroom. <laughs> the maesters, the, the septons, and the mushrooms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so ultimately, the women didn't convince Kragen. They convinced Aegon, the king. But Aegon wasn't of age yet. Still, Kragen didn't overrule him. He accepted what the young king said even though he didn't have to. Even though Craig was like, no, I'm the hands. You're under 16. We're doing what I say. Meh. That, again, probably helped keep their relationship strong. He respected the king, and later their relationship would be good, even when Craig was back in the north and Aegon was ruling in his own right. That paid off. Anyway, here's a quote relating to that. A new war would not have dismayed him. Indeed, at times he seemed to seek it, It is Mushroom who provides the most lucid explanation for this surprising leniency in the wolf of Winterfell. It was not the prince who swayed him, the fool claims, nor the looming threat of the Valarian fleets, nor even the entreaties of the twins, but rather a bargain struck with Lady Alisande of House Blackwood. Now Shay is putting on screen some artwork. Yeah, there's Cragen Stark and Black Alley Blackwood. By Naomi makes art. Naomi makes art. Where you yes. can see those those stark gray eyes. Yeah, Naomi does make art quite <laughs> well. <laughs> the full conversation between them in Fire and Blood is is pretty fun. It's it's too long to go through all of it. It's it's one of the more substantial conversations in the entire book. Usually, you don't get that much back and forth. Usually, it's just like a line and then a response, and then that's it. But this is several back and forths. So he steers her towards accepting marriage in exchange for peace. And mushrooms suggest that's what she wanted all along. I mean, as if she saw an amazing win-win situation, which it is. It's like, for her, it's what it looks like. 
peace for the realm. And I marry the young Lord of Winterfell. Like that is win-win, but not just for her. It's win-win-win Winterfell. Yeah. Other things like besides preventing war, which alone is massive, the marriage to Cregan, which is huge. The removal of the stain on honor with regard to Torn Stark. They had came and done that. Many joined the Night's Watch because when it came time to do the executions, Cregan wasn't backing down on that. Many of them were like, hey, Night's Watch, Night's Watch, we'll join the Night's Watch. And Cregan's like, okay, yeah, cool. Saves me a swing of my sword. The Sea Snake got off as well because oh, Black yeah? Alley won. Yeah, he got off. Yeah. <laughs> he got, because Black, Black Alley said he needs to be freed as part of this. So he agreed to that as part of the peace deal. Laris, however, was executed and he did not go to the wall. He opted not to go to the wall, but he also asked for his foot to come off after his head. <laughs> That's a whole weird story. But there were a lot of Northerners who came south expecting to die. And going home wasn't appealing. Why? Well, quote. The snows were already deep beyond the net. The cold winds rising in keeps and castles and humble villages throughout the north. The great and small alike prayed to their carved wooden god trees that this winter might be short. I love how they put that. Carved wooden god trees. The... Prejudice against northern northern beliefs in fire and blood is just so strong. Like, like pray to their dead idols of you know. I'm just like picture like, what do they talk about the faith of the seven yeah. like that? Like they're lifeless statues. That's how they would put it. Probably yeah, these, they're lifeless these, statues. These, or an, these <laughs> inanimate and, objects. Yeah, these inanimate <laughs> objects that we have humanized into yeah. many different versions. Yes. Each one has seven personalities or beyond that even. Yeah, the, the other one is, what is it What it used to say about Sarah Snow? He's like, there's no way that he, the prince gave up his virtue to an unwashed northern yeah. savage, half wild unwashed. Like, how do, you, yeah. how do you know she's unwashed, man? Like, even the half wild part is just a, is a stretch. Like, you don't even think she exists, yet you're posturing she's unwashed. <laughs> I, I, that's like my go-to example of prejudice is unwashed. <laughs> Where does that come from? Well, Aziz, define prejudice for me. It's when it's when Eustace calls Sarah Snow unwashed. Okay, great. <laughs> That's right. But it is still relevant. The reason that prejudice is important is because, yeah, a lot of other people would feel like Eustace. There's a lot of this. He's not the only prejudiced Southerner against Northerners. We have to think that a lot of others felt that way. But on the other hand, many widowed Riverlanders, obviously I'm referring to women since I said widowed, are like, well, what do I do now? Like the Riverlands, as so often happens in a civil war, gets shredded by battles and armies passing through and the horses eating all their grass and the soldiers eating all their food and pilfering their villages or worse. So this was the natural solution. All those Northern warriors who expected to die, well, why not stay? A new lease on life, a life none expected. Hey, you could live in the Riverlands where it's warmer. You could have land. You could have a wife. You might actually take over fathering of the widow's children. You might, you might have like a real purpose in life here. So that, that's a, what a reversal for these individuals. They're like, all right, we're going to go to the South and die. Like Craigan said to the lads, and they're like, your men are going to die. And these was like, they died the moment they marched south, boy. You know, and he's saying boy to someone who's like four years younger than him. (laughs) 
what a reversal. Like they think they're going to die. They're expecting it. It's almost like they're looking forward to it in some strange way. But now all of a sudden they're like, well, actually we could stay here and do this. Now, of course, there were also, there were more sellsword companies formed as well because not everyone wanted this life of, of meaning in living with a person and raising a family. That's not what everyone wants. But plenty of people accepted that offer, like a thousand men or more. And that really helped set up the future North-South connection or at least Riverlands North connection that comes along in A Song of Ice and Fire. It's already sort of been there. I mean, you've got houses like Blackwood that already keep the old gods. And hey, the North and the Riverlands are neighbors. So yeah, a lot of stuff that makes sense there. So Black Alley and uh, Cregan departed King's Landing for the North. Ditto for Cregan. He had a new lease on life when he didn't expect. He didn't expect to find a bride in the South. Well, maybe he did. But uh, nothing overtly suggests that. I, I do imagine he wanted to remarry. Although at this point, he had a son, he had an heir, though that would change eventually as well. He was offered a place amongst the Regency, but declined, which may have finally put to rest some of the talk that he was out in this for himself and for ambition. Probably didn't put that to rest entirely, but it was a, a big pushback against anyone who thought he intended to stay, because he didn't. He left, and he took his men with him. Well, except for the ones who migrated to the Riverlands, but those were individuals settling in, in single plots here and there. They were no longer an army. So kind of an underrated move there. He was succeeded his hand by Tyland Lannister, by the way, the hooded hand, Jason's brother, yeah. who survived the war, but... The, the Lannister the twin that's been on the council. Yeah, that's right. So he made it through as well. All right. Mm. Let's take a quick break here. Here's a funny thing I found in the Sospake Martin looking up stuff about the crypts and things. There's a question George was asked in 1999, January 3rd, 1999. Now, this is the caveat here. The wording comes from the person, the people who took this information down. It isn't necessarily George's exact wording, but the gist here alone is pretty important. So the the Should I read it? Yeah, you go ahead and read it. After rereading both Agot and Acock, I was wondering about one question. Why was Hodor not afraid of the crypts under Winterfell at the end of A Clash of Kings? In A Game of Thrones, Hodor was very afraid of the crypts. He wouldn't take Bran down there, but in A Clash of Kings, he stayed with Bran and Rickon in the crypt for quite a while. How did he stay there if he was so afraid? And the answer from George, Hodor was only afraid of the crypts at that specific time, not before and not after. Oh, very telling. So Hodor sensed something down there and it may have been, you know, the coming, the foreshadowing for Ned's death or something else. Mm. Really cool. Guinevere Greenstones asks, might be more of a question for the end, but who is your fan cast actor for Cregan Stark? He's Liam Neeson in my head. I, I mean, I can see Liam Neeson for the old man, the old, not one, old, yeah. old, but you know, like middle range. But the, yeah. the age that I think a lot of people picture Craig and Stark at, I do. Like, I, I, there was a conversation about it in the chat about like how old you picture him or how old you picture people like Dunk or any of these characters because like they live a long, like, a whole long life. You know, your your vision of them could be a lot of different ages. I personally do picture twenty two year old Cragen, and I want an unknown. If you've listened to the podcast long enough, you know that's always my answer to these fan cast questions. Give me someone I don't know very well. Yeah, I think I prefer an unknown as well. And, and, and you're right, it's going to be someone young because it's more yeah. likely to be an unknown. Yeah. Someone with less of a career, less time to have established a career, let alone 
something yeah. big. You know, I, I want someone from the Last Kingdom just for more Last Kingdom <laughs> House of the that Dragon cool. crossovers. We've got like Helena and we got Eamon and a million other people. Yeah, what if they? But uh, what if they give it, put a beard on the guy who played the Last King there, uh, Edward? He was. Pretty, oh yes, he's uh, yeah. Whereas I think like if the actor who played Uhtred wasn't so much older than he is now, but like a young one here at the beginning of that show, like I see him so stark like. Okay. Um, I would have seen Uhtred, yeah. but not not anymore. Now he needs to be a lot, you know, like a decade or more younger than yeah, he does, is. Yeah, does Alexander Draymond have a younger brother? Or? Yeah, yeah. That's his name, Alexander Draymond. Does he have a son? <laughs> 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 I like that call, though. Yeah, Guinevere, Liam Neeson for, for a middle-aged freaking, that would work quite well. He's got that intensity and, you know, he's got that charisma and he can dominate. All right, friends, we are putting out a call for call to action for y'all to subscribe to History of Westeros. We have always relied on y'all's support on Patreon and now as well as Spotify subscribers. We, of course, have sponsors sometimes, but we can't rely on those. They're inconsistent. The podcast landscape is constantly developing. It's like the Wild West of as far as an entertainment industry goes. We never can predict what's going to happen. We've had to move several times. You know, it's we ride the waves as they take us. We're one podcast in a sea of many. And we got to go the way the industry goes. So we've had some really nice sponsorships from time to time. Right now, we find ourselves with almost none. <laughs> so we went from having a lot to a little. It's something that we did. It's just the random nature of the beast. I'm sure we'll have some more again soon. But perfect time for us to say, hey, y'all, if you've been thinking about joining about signing up and voluntarily subscribing to History of Westeros and sending us a small amount each month. This is a good time for that. We have plenty to offer you in return. Occasional shout-outs at certain levels. Bonus episodes is always the biggest one. And Ashea and Sean and I have been smulling over some changes and things we can do to add additional benefits. Yeah, we could tease one of them. We're going to have like some monthly trivia and Jackbox like Quiplash games, just like a, a hangout. So we'll have that for one. So if you sign up now, you'll you know be invited to that when it starts. Yeah. You also get access to Ashea's episode searching tool, which is really useful. The larger our catalog gets, the harder it is to necessarily find the episode you're looking for. Because sometimes you're like, I really want to watch all the episodes with Nina, with Good Queen Alley, for example. And with the episode searcher, you can just click on the Nina guest title and see all the episodes with her and then click the links and it'll take you to it on Spotify and on YouTube. So if you listen to it on podcast or on video. There's a direct link to them both. And so that's just one way you could use it potentially. Heck, I use that. Like, for example, Joe Magician, shout out to our buddy and hopefully still in the chat there. He is. We're, next time we have him on, I'm going to be like, I'm going to use the episode searcher to remember. It's like, well, how many episodes have you been on? You've been on several. I can't remember. Yeah, right. I'm actually Off the top of my head. I would use that to figure out which ones he was in. And hey, that's a good call clue to any of y'all if you want your Joe Magician fix. <laughs> You can check out the ones he's been on with us or just head over to his channel and watch his his direct content. That works too. (laughs) He has been, I am so curious to find this out and I am going to see exactly how many he's been on. I'm going to guess four. Four episodes Joe Magician has been on? Yeah. Okay, I think you've way undersold it. He's been on seven. Seven? Seven, but I I don't know if I, I don't think we've had him on since, I, I think I've kept it up. I don't think we've had him on since House of the Dragon. No, we haven't. We haven't. haven't. So yeah, seven episodes he's been on. One of which was our multiplayer Crusader Kings 3 stream. I didn't count that one. Yeah, Yeah. like that one isn't like (laughs) quite the same. But we did do a a game stream with him one time. Okay. 
I, uh, I wouldn't account that one. So, so we'll say the real then. answer was six. So I was, I was, okay. I sold it short by a full thirty-three yeah. percent. Oh, Joe yeah. Magician guess. Oh, geez, IDK like six. So he was right. Whoa, he knew. He knew. <laughs> yeah, he, you actually did know. He said, "Damn, I was close." I was like, "No, you were right." Unless you count, I count the game stream because it's on our channel. You could watch it. Yeah, I mean, you could um, still watch it. Yeah. And speaking of, we are in the Crusader Kings three beta. Uh, we ah. can't share too much about it. Well, I don't have much to well, share yet. The public yet. beta will launch on April 14th. Yeah. So we, I haven't actually played it yet. We are going. We apparently just got access today. So I could maybe start playing it soon. So we're going to also have CK3 streams returning at some point. And that's part of why I haven't returned to the game streams yet because we knew that CK3 was close. Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah. So yeah, we'll be able to record content to release later. But once it's... Public, you know, once it's out, we can just stream as we would. So that'll be fun. Yeah. So you can sign up for our Patreon at historyofwesteros.com. There's links to all of our different places, or you can go directly to patreon.com slash historyofwesteros. Or if you are a Spotify subscriber, and the link is in every episode description, just a single symbol, symbol, single? simple, simple, <laughs> click. <laughs> and it just gets added to your monthly subscription. So you can kind of just fire and forget and not worry about it again. There is a Cregan Stark in A Song of Ice and Fire. You may remember him as... Or sorry, Cregan Karstark in A Song of uh-huh. Ice and Fire. You may remember him as the one that tried to forcibly marry Alice Karstark, his niece, and is, as we last saw, imprisoned in an ice cell. No, Cregan Stark married Allie, not Alice. And didn't have to chase her. In fact, it kind of sounds like more like she chased him a bit and he liked it. And hey, why not? I, I would like that too. Black Alley sounds pretty awesome. Now, let's talk about her. As I said, this would be called the Black Alley era because at some point he went from the wolf in the north to the old man in the north. In between was her. <laughs> so she is a, a good enough milestone. One of the best, probably. Let's have a quote about her. Though Black Alley was no man's queen of love and beauty, her fearlessness... <laughs> 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 nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Her fearlessness. Stop. God damn. <laughs> <laughs> fearlessness. Her fearlessness. <laughs> okay. I'm going to start that over. Though Black Alley was no man's queen. <laughs> I get the kicks about. Okay. Though Black Alley was no... Let's see, just read this. <laughs> the worst. I get the giggles so bad. Though Black Alley was no man's queen of love and beauty, her fearlessness, stubborn strength, and body tongue struck a chord for the Lord of Winterfell, who soon began to seek out her company in hall and yard. She smells of wood smoke, not of flowers, Stark told Lord Serwin, said to be his closest friend. How did he find that out? How did, how did the sources find out what Stark told Lord Serwin? And Serwin, like, go spill the beans? He's like, <laughs> I'll tell you, he's, he said she smells of wood smoke, not flowers. <laughs> What a kind of northerner says that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but speak for yourself, maester, no man's queen of love and beauty. Like, yeah. what the hell is that? This Sounds is, like this is, Cregan's queen of love and beauty. Yeah, he was, yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> I mean, this is the same guy who called Sarah Snow half wild, savage, yeah, unwashed. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, I think his opinion is sus for sure. Very sus, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so they were married late in 132. Many months after they left Winterfell, or after they left the South, no rush, I suppose. They had to get it all together, invite the guests. But it happened at the Godswood in Winterfell. And we know Bloody Ben, her nephew, Black Alley's nephew, was in attendance. And Rickon, young Rickon, four years old, sang for her, which is like, what a detail to include. What, how yeah. heartwarming. 
<laughs> Unfortunately, this is where things start to become considerably less detailed because this is almost near the end of Fire and Blood here. And there's only a few more notes from Fire and Blood that apply to our story. From, from, that, from that point on, it becomes inferences from just historical detail. We lose like direct quotes and things like that. We don't know how long Black Alley lived. Seems like it was on the longer side for a couple of reasons. One of which is that he did eventually remarry, but it seems to have been pretty far in the future, given when those children were born with that third wife, Lenara. As well, he had four daughters with Black Alley, which, you know, that could have happened in a fairly short span, like four or five years. But that's not likely. It's more likely to have been spread out somewhat. And with this, too, you wonder about his soft spot for women, what it meant to him to have a bunch of daughters. Uh, you wonder if that goes back to Aranori or maybe Sarah Snow was real. And yeah. she and reminded... It was wild, yeah. And was actually was wild. And, girl. <laughs> yeah, like, maybe he wasn't all that wrong. Maybe she was unwashed, you know? <laughs> maybe he really loved his mother and or grandmother, you know? Maybe they all remind him of, of Ara. There's all these rich options we have. We can't narrow it down to a specific one, but well, of the choices. He just be a decent fellow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of the choices we have, and there's several, they all, there's some really solid ones. But as I said before, winter was looming. They went back to get married. It was already winter. It had already been winter for a while, and it didn't let up. So this section we're calling Tough Times for the North. Started mm. off with a quote. The specter of famine loomed in the North as Cragen Stark and his Lord's Bannermen watched their food stores dwindle, whilst the Night's Watch turned back an ever-increasing number of wildling incursions from beyond the wall. I'm the specter of famine. <laughs> it's like the ghost of Christmas past. So those men who took the black after the dance, rather than face Lord Cragen with ice and get executed, they found themselves facing that instead. They may have wished they had accepted the execution. We can guess Craig sent what help he could. He's a friend of the watch, especially when they're being attacked. But the famine would have caused him more problems, would have made it difficult for him to help as much as he probably would have wanted. Then it got worse. Winter fever emerged in the sisters. The sisters isn't very far from White Harbor. There's a lot of traffic between the two, so it wasn't long before it spread there. And it actually spread even farther. It got all the way to Barrowton, which is overland in a sparsely populated region north, in the north where people aren't exactly out and about a lot in winter, yet it's still spread, which, reminder of how bad grayscale is going to be. I keep blowing that horn. And as is often the case, when a realm falls into weakness, that's an invitation for the enemies of that realm to take action. Quote. Widespread famine was reported in the north and the winter fever descended on Barrowton the first time it had ever traveled so far inland. A raider named Silas the Grim led 3,000 wildlings against the wall, overwhelming the Black Brothers at Queensgate and spreading out across the gift until Lord Craig and Stark rode forth from Winterfell, joined with the Glovers of Deepwood Mott, the Flints and Norries of the Hills, and a hundred rangers from the Night's Watch to hunt them down and put an end to them. So note the helpers there, the specific ones mentioned, the Glovers, the Flints, and the Norries. The Flints, well, there's lots of Flints. There's several branches of the Flints, but the Glovers and the Norries are his 
closest kin. Nori, you know, Ara Nori, his first wife. Rickon, his son, is a Nori. Half Nori, whatever. And his mother was a Glover. So, yeah. 3,000 is a lot of free folk, although it's nowhere close to, like, Mance's army. And that's because this was not a king beyond the wall. This was some sort of super raider guy. But on the other hand, if it's that bad in the north, it was probably really bad beyond the wall, too. So these 3,000 raiders were probably somewhat on the desperate side. And they probably weren't like, ooh, now's our chance to go get all this food. No, they were like, well, what choice do we have? We're dying. So both sides were probably desperate and weak. Now, it's hard to find 3,000 men when the snows are constant enough to cover their tracks. You think normally they would leave a trail and it wouldn't be that hard to find 3,000 men, even in a place as large as the North, given the familiarity so many Northerners have with their region. They would be able to tell if 3,000 men had marched through here, especially considering they're going to need to eat and they're stealing that food from people on their way. But in deep snows, it's a much different picture. So this may have taken some time to resolve. Now, on the other hand, the Starks have yet to take advantage of Southern weakness, even though we just pointed out that they could have. Craig and Stark could have done a lot of things and during the hour the wolf fed, he chose not to. He could have pushed Northern independence completely. But his father made an oath and he made an agreement with Jason. That's that. He's not an oath breaker. He doesn't break deals. Like it may have been an option in the sense that it was a choice that could have been made, but as far as like choices that he would make, no, nah, may not have remotely come to mind as a possible choice given his values. But still, it's interesting to note, this could have been a chance for them to break free. The dragons were pretty much all dead. Just that one pink dragon that was sitting on Raina's shoulder and a few riderless dragons that were no threat to anyone, at least not in war. It would have been almost easy as far as independence goes, right? Cregan stayed engaged in Southern politics at least a little bit. He sent strongly worded letter to Unwin Peak when Unwin tried to marry his daughter to Aegon III. Luckily, a lot of other people also objected to that because that letter alone may not have been enough. But don't underestimate the power of a letter from Craig and Stark, given he had proven he was willing to march south with all those men and he had already shown what kind of man he was. Which, by the way, if you're thinking that Craigan's a particularly smart guy, which he might have been, someone who thinks ahead a lot, which he might have been. All of that bluster, all of that energy, all that willingness to go fight and die may have been partly for show. It may have been just to remind everybody of what the North was, like a permanent, semi-permanent display of why you should not mess with us. (laughs) You know, just paint a picture of what happens if you mess with the North. So just really play that up. Just make them look as intimidating as again. And now's our chance to show the South what we're about. If we do it right, it'll set the stage for a century or more in how they view us. Arguably that happened, whether it was an an intent of Cregan's or not. He would have hated the news that they almost poisoned Aegon III and then they did poison his food taster, Gaiman Palehair, and almost killed Daenerys Velaryon as well. Because of course he hated the poisoning of Aegon II, even though Aegon II was his enemy. He thought Aegon II should have been overthrown like honorably, like in battle rather than with poison. And thinking about maybe Unwin actually maybe being a little worried that Cregan would return with an army, he's not too worried about it during winter. But, you know, he knows that winter's not going to last forever. There's a mystery as to why Marston Waters never did end the secret siege by force. Fire and Blood opines. I'm like, why didn't Marston Waters 
send his men to attack. He could have easily overwhelmed Sandok the Shadow, even though he was intimidating, because there's only one Sandok the Shadow, and he had, you know, hundreds of men. Why didn't he do that? One guess I have that I hadn't thought of until now is Cregan. He knew Aegon and Cregan were at least a little bit tight, if not a lot tight. And if he's like, hey, Cregan, look what they're doing to me down here. <laughs> He might come back, and Martian Waters doesn't want any of that. No, thank you. So that might have been one of the things that gave him pause. It might have been one of the main things. That gave him, it might have been the main thing that gave him pause. Maybe other considerations were in play, like saving his own skin from the fact that his conspiracy was blowing up in his face, or the guys running the conspiracy were having a blow up on him. He wasn't, he wasn't, of course, the one running it, but he was high up there. In 135, the winter finally broke. And that's when apparently Cregan borrowed from the Iron Bank to pay for new crops to plant and get started again and to buy enough food to get them over until that, those crops would be ready because that's obviously months away. So add debt to the Iron Bank to the list of problems for another day. And we don't know how this came into play, but it, if we did know, it might tell us a little something about what Jon Snow is facing having a debt of his own to the Iron Bank. Well, the Night's Watch has that debt. It's not Jon Snow's personal debt, but you know what I mean. It's, it's the same scenario, roughly speaking. But seriously, if I'm the Iron Bank, is there a safer bet than the Starks for a loan? Like, they've been there in charge for 8,000 years, it seems. <laughs> they have this attitude about always, like it's the Lannisters that always pay their debts, according to them, but the Starks, like, they remember, you know, <laughs> eternal, like, that's, Man, I would be all about loaning money to the Starks about the Iron Bank. I would feel very safe with that. <laughs> so the next year is 136, and that's when Aegon III comes of age and dismisses Lord Manderly. So I have a miniature theory here, because Aegon liked Cregan. Cregan liked Aegon. That's what, Cregan? No, that's their ship name. No, they're not. that's not a ship. No, 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 no. never mind. Just kidding. Different Aegon. A different Aegon. <laughs> cut that, yeah, cut that. So those two got along real well. Manderly and Aegon did not get along. They didn't like each other. They're different personalities. So does that mean Cregan and Torin didn't get along? They wonder, maybe, you know? I mean, Torin was his vassal. You know, he, he maybe got along with Desmond, who was Torin's father. So maybe the, the Cregan Stark and Torin Manderly weren't, weren't so best of friends. But that's just a guess. That's, you know, there's, there's plenty of reasons why they would be fine. And it certainly doesn't imply that they didn't like each other or that they had problems. Something to mention. So after this, we also lose track of the cycles of winter and summer. We know there was a winter in 166, 167, because there was an autumn where there were some really bad storms the year before. But we have no idea how long it lasted. It's always coming. Winter's always coming, as they say. And they are Stark. Oh, hey, my shirt says it. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if Craig had thought of these other Starks. Was he pondering that when they're sitting there in the midst of winter? Was thinking about other Starks and how they handled winter hundreds or thousands of years before. Or maybe he wasn't the type to dwell on such things. Wolves don't think about the other wolves. Not only that, we lose the historical mentions. This is, this is we're really getting foggy here. But we do have names, we do have dates, and there's, there's a lot we can do with even that. So if Sarah Snow was real, well, she probably got married because she didn't marry Jace, or at least she would have remarried if she, if she did marry him in secret or something because he died so soon after. I doubt she just stayed 
a widow her whole life. Well, although that is possible. It, it does happen. So who are the daughters he had with Blackout? Sarah. <laughs> Dang it. Spelled differently. So there's Sarah with two R's, Sarah with one R, Sarah with an E, and two R's, Sarella, and Saranella. They're all names that appear throughout the books. So there's also... Sarah, like S-A-R-A. Oh, gosh, I've got the Targaryen Sarah. I knew I was forgetting one. Yeah. So you're right. It's a lot of Sarahs, y'all. <laughs> and there, in the real world, there's S-A-R-A-H, too, which there isn't a version of that here, I don't think. I don't think there's an A-H in Westeros, but George has one still he can use if he wants another Sarah. <laughs> he can also do two R's or, yeah, anyway. So there was another Alice. So that's not a... Not an Ali, but kind of an Ali, you know, Ali, Alice. So there's an Alice Stark there. Then a Rhea Stark. That one's almost certainly an Easter egg. Not only is Rhea an anagram for Arya, which is the same four letters, just in different order, but Rhea is one of George's assistants and an, a career illustrator in her own right. An excellent person. We know her, Rhea Golden. Yeah. George's minions. And she, she did, her latest project is the, uh, I think, maybe she's done something since this, but she did. She did a Clerks? Clerk, clerk, oh yeah, that's that's her latest. That's I was her latest. Of, not, not a song of ice and fire, but she also was working on the ice dragon stuff. Yeah, I was thinking of uh, Starport. Oh, Starport, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. So okay. she's got a lot of great projects. She's she's awesome, and almost certainly, this is a nod to her. Then there's a fourth daughter named Mariah. Now we don't know anything about these kids. Anything about these daughters? Maybe they were like their mother. Maybe some of them were. Maybe some of them were tough, like Black Lady. You know, like like that. Maybe they were. Real stark women, or maybe, yeah, maybe some of them were more courtly, like Sansa. Who knows? You got four of them. There's all sorts of possibilities. Maybe one of them had a husband whose house would be staunch for them, as Lady of Winterfell. Maybe some had designs through their wives, right? Ambitious husbands. Who knows? You know what I find interesting is that, like the two Mariahs that we hear, you know, like the, the two extremes. Yeah, the Martells and the Starks. That's true. It's like so far for the, that name to. I mean, it's. it's I mean. Technically now it's with an Y for the, the Dornish version, but it wasn't always. Yeah. And so anyways, I just think it's interesting. You're right. Yeah, that is a curiosity. It's a name that really just transcends the borders, I suppose. Yeah, but like we don't know anyone else. It's like Alice. Like one of those yeah. names that seems to appear everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does seem to appear. Well, I, 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 it, does, it doesn't seem to appear everywhere. It's like appears in far north and far south and probably just haven't met any that appear in between. But yeah, that's true. There's, we don't know probably others. Probably some others, but yeah. Mm-hmm. So we don't know who any of those four daughters married, nor when Black Alley died or how. We do know Bloody Ben Blackwood lived a particularly long life. So that's her nephew. So he may have come north for her funeral since he came for her wedding or to pay his respects, something like that, since they had a good connection, the Starks and the Blackwoods, especially in this era, obviously. So good chance he went up there for her funeral. Now, if he did marry his daughters to... Northern Lords, which is the most likely destination for them. We could guess at who he might have done that with, who we might have made those arrangements with. And now, of course, this, these are just guesses. We have no idea whether there were marriage, marriageable boys or men available. So pure guesswork. Nori, though, just keeping it with the families he was already had strong ties to. Glover, Flint, since they helped against Silas the... Grim. The Grim, yeah. Blackwood, maybe. More Blackwoods could have gotten involved since they already had that sort of channel open. Serwin, for obvious reasons, being close and having the friendships he had with Lord Serwin. Manderley, just for politics and, you know, keeping it tight with the Manderleys. That's important. Because at some point, Rickon, young Rickon, marries Jane Manderley, who was 
probably a daughter of Lord Desmond, but could have been a daughter of Torin, Manderley. So Desmond had been Lord throughout the dance, but he died in 132 from that winter fever that we said that went around. Uh, so the Pact of Ice and Fire was still unfulfilled by this point, but Cregan couldn't wait forever to find a bride for his heir. But that still is interesting. It must have been a decision of some point. Like, yeah, we're not going to ever get that Targaryen princess, are we? <laughs> you wonder, like, when he finally gave up on that. Or, like, the Mandalays are probably like, eh, Jane Mandley right here. By get, you know, if you don't get on this train now, we're going to have her marry some other northern lord, you know? <laughs> so you know, I wonder how, if he just dangled that until it's like, look, you're not going to get a Targaryen princess, yo. Just, <laughs> let's do this. So Cregan eventually has granddaughters via this marriage. Sansa. I know. He's like, he's like, I know something else that has scales. Only half of them have a tail. It's like, yeah, it's a little more. Yeah, I know something else with a tail. What else has tails and a scale that would want to marry you? <laughs> <laughs> three prongs on a claw, three yeah. prongs on a trident, yeah. you know? <laughs> three prongs has the trident, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so Sansa and Serena are granddaughters from this marriage of Rickon and Jane Manderley. We don't know when they were born either, although we do know when they were born before because it was before the conquest of Dorne. Because unfortunately, in the year 157 or maybe 158, Rickon is killed near, near Sunspear in one of the final battles of Dorne. Daron mentions him. King Daron, the young dragon, mentions him in the conquest of Dorne, like writes about his exploits as if it was significant. So he was probably right there with him and the Dragon Knight, you know, fighting with all the other like highfalutin nobles. Again, this is a possible landing spot for when Cregan himself might have dueled Aemon the Dragon Knight. Maybe some sort of being upset about what happened here, how this was handled, a duel for honor. Again, just pure guessing. And it also opens a question of who becomes the heir. There's a long been a question of how the North handles issues like this. We don't know how they did it. We've never had a Lady of Winterfell, so it's pretty hard to guess that they do follow straight primogeniture. They probably do pass over women, or they have passed over women, at least many times, if not every time. So we don't know who the heir was. Was Sansa the heir? She would be under Southern laws, but I don't know. If she was, even if she wasn't, her hand would become the most desired in the North if she wasn't married, because... You could claim Winterfell through her or throw her children, if not directly, because she's already the Lady of Winterfell. So the ambitious folks would be all over this. But Cregan's not dying anytime soon here. <laughs> so whatever plans they made weren't going anywhere because heirs are still heirs <laughs> as long as the Lord's alive. And much is going to change in the meantime that shifts the ground around that whole succession situation. So when Rickon died, that was 157, 158. So he'd be 49-ish years old. It's possible Black Alley had passed before this. Again, we have no idea. It's the foggiest portion of the timeline. We have some idea of what was going on in King's Landing on a basic level. For example, Daron's reign was short and then Baylor took over. It's long been a theory that Baylor's policies were going to cause problems for the North. And it's possible problems is putting it mildly. We'd really want to know what Cregan thought about all that. This is another possibility for an Aemon versus Cregan duel here over northern versus southern religious policies. It could be rooted in that issue. Rooted being a very good word to use for wherewood purposes, yes. 
And basically, Baylor, as peaceful and pacifistic as he was, could have been a real problem for the North because of all his anti-non-Faith of the Seven stuff. Like, he wanted to replace the Ravens, right, with white doves or whatever. Like, that's a disaster waiting to happen. That alone restricts communication with the North. It would have hurt them more than it would have hurt other regions because they could still carry letters from shorter distances and still communicate a little bit. But cutting off, that's a lot of communication cut off from the North. And that's only one small problem out of many that Baylor's kind of, maybe not intentionally, but driving up anger and fear about tree worshiping and the old gods and stuff. And that can have violent side effects of people attacking Northerners for their beliefs and stuff like that. And what did he think of the maidens in the tower? Jace signed that pact of ice and fire. Jace was his uncle, Baylor meaning, his half-uncle technically. But it's the Targaryen side they have in common. That's the part that probably matters. If you're not going to marry any of those sisters yourself, bro, why not fulfill your agreement? Send one of those princesses north. Imagine Dana the Defiant married to Craig and Stark. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I mean, no, no way. Baylor would have ever have no. suffered heathen marriages. No, he wasn't going to do that. But yeah, from try, he's not even trying to marry him out, period. Yeah, he's not trying to marry them to anyone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, like, definitely alone to a northern not Earth. someone who doesn't worship the faith. But from Cregan's perspective, or maybe some other northern lords who were aware of that promise, they'd be like, hey, what's the deal? Like, you had this promise, you're not marrying them to anyone? Like, fulfill your promise, man. Mm-hmm. And of course, like, some of this theorizing is perhaps a complete mess because Dan the Defiant marrying Cregan could be impossible because Black Alley might have still been alive. You know, yeah. we have no idea. But this is yet another thing they could have dueled over. It's like, you promised us a bride, never delivered it. I want to duel for honor, you know. At some point during this, his name went from Wolf of the North to Old Man of the North. <laughs> so don't know when, uh, who knows, again. Like, not even Old Wolf of the North? Old Wolf of the North. But at some point, Black Alley did die. We don't know how long he went without a wife. It may have been something he decided to address quickly because he doesn't have a son or something that he didn't address quickly because he loved Black Alley and was not ready to remarry. So it's a real duty versus love question here, I suppose. Maybe. Potential duty versus love question here. Whatever happened, whatever time passed or didn't, that third wife was Lynara Stark. So was he trying to father a new male heir? Or was he trying to have company? Or was it political reasons? You can see why there would be political reasons. Let's refer back to the earliest part of the episode when I mentioned her, Lenara, and her family connections. She is a descendant of Brandon the Boisterous, the second Lord of Winterfell, meaning second Lord after Torin Nelt, not, you know, after Brandon the Builder. So this marriage would unite two branches of House Stark so that you can see why that would be a political move to reduce the chance of civil strife. Uniting the Starks means there's less likely to be squabbling over Winterfell after the eventual death of Cregan, which is still a while away, as it turned out. But they didn't know that. Even Cregan probably was like, man, I'm, I'm still alive. It might not last, but I'm still going. And he was clearly still capable of fathering children, it seems. Seems like he was still very capable of plenty of stuff. But it would have maybe seemed likely to those observing that he might not live much longer because, well, it's just the way of the world. But Cregan would also have his own personal experience with people squabbling over Winterfell. It happened to him. Thanks, Uncle Bernard. But, and he has no son of his own, so he could very easily see 
problems in the future if he didn't take care of that. If he didn't set things to right, put Winterfell back on a path with a stable heir, stable succession situation, well, he's putting his own house and the North on the road to exactly what happened in the South. He lived through the Dance of the Dire Wolves, the Dance of the Dragons, and here he is staring down the barrel of another civil situation very similar to those two because of his own lack of established succession. But that did change under Lynara. Four new Stark boys and another daughter named Lyanna. <laughs> Ironically, that's too many sons. <laughs> too many sons. I mean, that brings you right back to the original problem of too many claimants to win. Or, yeah, maybe just two sons would have been better. But hey, you can't control these things exactly. Well, I guess you can. But he didn't control these things. They kept popping out Starks. So none of them took the black which is interesting in and of itself. Usually excess Starks, you see that happen. They sort of take it upon themselves, duty, right? Starks are big on duty very often to do what's necessary to tamp down those odds of civil war. I mean, Benjen did that quite clearly or apparently for, for the exact reasons we don't know, but he did. He took the black at a pretty young age when once a Rob was born, once there was another Stark out there to take the place of Ned if anything bad were to happen. So it's a little peculiar that none of these Starks took the black, and it is part of why there was so much trouble. It's not clear if this reflects on Cregan or Linara more or both, but uh, you don't get the impression that these were of the, the lone wolf dies, the pack survives attitude. Like, that was not passed on to them, it seems. So that might be a, a knock on Cregan or Linara or both. It is said that after Cregan's death, they truly lamented the death of Rickon at Sunspear due to how tumultuous the following era was. Like, they lamented it at the time, but they, like, re-lamented it, you know, 30-some years later. Because of all the problems that came, like, boy, if, if that Rickon, who we all loved so much, who was a great singer and a great warrior, it would have been fine, you know? But no. And, and it's, it's, it's so compelling, but we don't know what a lot of the tumult was. It's going to be a great story for another time. And then we get it. The sons have colorful names. Kind of remind me of the sons of Ragnar Lothbrok from not just the TV versions, <laughs> but, you know, the real stories that might not be real. <laughs> he's he's semi-legendary, yeah. semi-mythical. There's Jonal One-Eye who married Sansa, the daughter of Rickon. So whatever succession issues there might have been, this may have been solved by marrying those two halves of Craigan's family. So that's a pretty incestuous marriage for Stark. <laughs> I mean, we've seen first cousin marriages before, but this is a half brother, half sister marriage right here. Right? Yeah. Or no, no, it's a, it's an, it's a, sorry, it's a yeah. niece, half uncle marriage. Yeah. Still pretty close. That's a lot closer than cousin, even first cousin. Big question is, did Cregan arrange this marriage? Cregan and Lenar arrange this marriage? I think probably because so many more sons followed, so he was probably alive. But maybe not. Next was Edric, who also married Rickon's daughter, the other one, Serena. Serena had first married John Umber, though. And that was perhaps arranged by Cregan. Perhaps all of these were. But John Umber died. And so Edric and Serena had four children. Krigard and Torin, who were twin sons, Krigard, not Krigard, yeah. and Torin, Arana and Aragel. Now, Arana married Osric Umber, so it was maybe like a make good for the John Umber marriage that didn't work out. And Aragel married Robard Serwin, who may have been, you know, more of this 
Cregan's friendship with the Serwins is neighborly related to that. And Aragel and Robard Serwin had at least one child, which may have been born before Cregan died. So a great-grandchild for Cregan. Yeah, most, uh, most Westerosi don't live to see great-grandchildren. What's an additional wrinkle here, though, is that Edric was the only one of Cregan's four sons here who did not inherit Winterfell, nor did his children inherit. So what the heck happened there? Because it went past Jonal after Jonal and Sansa didn't have children and Jonal died. It passed to Barthagen, who was the third son, Barth Blacksword. So how did Barth get it over all those other people? Something smells fishy here. It sounds like a usurpation or something. And Barth was, was killed in a rebellion, which may have happened because he didn't have a stronghold on the North. Hmm? Black Sword sounds maybe a little villainous. You know, maybe like he earned that nickname for doing something bad. Brandon was next. And Brandon is the one this all passes through. He marries... A different Alice Karstark, obviously a different Alice Karstark. We're talking 100 years prior to the one in The Song of Ice and Fire. But it's, yeah, there's a few Alices and a few Alice Karstarks, apparently. Brandon has, and Alice have three children together. Brandon has a fourth child before marrying Alice Karstark named Lonel Snow with someone named Willa Fenn. Another Willa thrown in there with a mm-hmm. snow. But the three trueborn children were Rodwell, Baron, and Arsa. Rodwell did not grow up to be a porn star, but probably should have. <laughs> Baron is the one dying from a wound suffered by, the, by fighting the Ironborn when the She-Wolves of Winterfell is supposed to be starting. That which is a unfinished, tentatively titled episode of Duncan Egg. Lots of interesting stories there, and they may go beyond the life of, of Cregan. Now, Brandon was born in 183, rather, at the very earliest. So he, he might have been born later than that, but 183 is the earliest he could have been born, which tells us Cregan lived at least that long, or at least long enough, at least to 182. He could have potentially died before Brandon was born, but he at least lived long enough to impregnate Lenara with Brandon. So if he died then, he would have been 75. But he probably lived beyond that, and again, Brandon was probably born a little later anyway. So that means his father and children in his 70s, if not later... But since Baron was dying at the beginning of She-Wolves or Winterfell, Brandon had to have at least been old enough to father a son and for that son to grow up and face the Ironborn in battle, which he probably wouldn't do unless, until he was at least 16 or something at the very earliest. So that, that doesn't give us a whole lot of room to work with. And as I said at the beginning, he did not live to the year 200 because Jonal was definitely Lord before the end of the century. Unless, of course, you know, Cregan might have abdicated and taken the black like Gior Morma. There's always a small chance of that, but that's a pure guess. No, no reason to suspect that other than it happens occasionally. What that tells us, though, is Cregan lived through the reign of Aegon IV. So all these things about seeing the signs of rebellion, seeing the seeds planted and being able to interpret it properly, this older man who's seen it all, his wisdom gained through the ages, has seen lots of civil conflict, and the seeds that are planted that eventually grow into that conflict. I think he saw it coming. I think he did stuff. I don't know what, but maybe that's why the Starks have no record of appearing in the Blackfire Bones. Maybe Craig was like, look, y'all, I see this coming. Stay out of it. On the other hand, all this tumult in the North, they may have just been too busy with their own stuff going on. They may not have been able to participate. But man, what would Craig have thought of Aegon IV? As much as he liked Aegon III, 
Aegon the Fourth has all these values. Well, I mean, no one likes Aegon the Fourth, really, except for other ambitious people that can use him for their own means. But I mean, at the end of our run through Under the Dragons, 50 to 129, we talked about how, like, out of all the Starks, there was just no known incidents of like drunkards or lots of sleeping around, lots of bastards. Definitely some. But not lots of it. Nothing remotely on the level of Aegon the Fourth, though. I mean, that guy's in his own. I mean, he almost puts Robert Baratheon to shame. So, what would they think? I mean, Ned tolerated Robert's behavior, sort of. What would Cregan think? Cregan's no Ned. You know, he's a lot different than Ned. He ruled a long time and saw lived a lot, much longer life. Saw a lot more civil wars. Had a lot more children. Just so many things. You know, he wouldn't want his children fighting in those wars for the Targaryens. You know, what's the point? What did it, what good did it do them to march south back then? Well, got him a wife, <laughs> some children, but that didn't happen. That didn't ha- happen to be because of the war. Like that could have happened for other reasons, right? So civil war happened in the dance because of negligence. Viserys didn't do enough to stop it and did things that allowed it to happen. He wasn't trying to set that up though. It wasn't his goal. Egg on the fourth though, I... <laughs> If it wasn't wanton negligence, it may have been intentional. He may have been like, yeah, I'm setting this all up. I want them to fight over it when I'm gone. (laughs) Alexander the Great kind of did that too. (laughs) So maybe. (laughs) History isn't sure. So what's his legacy? It's difficult to get a handle on him because his later life would be what people remember even more. Because and how he left the North, what shape he left it in when he died is going to be more remembered than what he did when he was 20. Because his life was so long. If those things were close together, they may all be remembered together. But given the bias we saw from the maesterly sources towards Northerners in general, too, the true telling <laughs> mm-hmm. may yet to come. It may be yet to come. <laughs> it's certain he was laid to rest in the crypts of Winterfell, of course, but there's still so much we don't know in between. There hasn't been another Stark named Cregan since that we know of, which is a little peculiar, but there was a Cree guard and I don't know, maybe they were just like, ah, that name kind of sucks. We like the dude, but not the name. (laughs) So I wouldn't read too much into that, but it is possible he's not remembered so fondly. He's a towering historical figure, but in that fog, that's the second half of his life, maybe he made some regrettable decisions or unlucky ones. Maybe his decision-making is blamed for or legitimately at fault for the tumult that followed. Maybe he made bad decisions. Maybe remarrying was a bad idea. Maybe people said, don't do that. And he did it anyway. Maybe people told him to stop having sons and he did it anyway. Maybe (laughs) it was just an old dorky name. (laughs) It fits what little we do know because, yeah, because things did go badly. So you could see people blaming him for it. Maybe not. Maybe the, I mean, some of those seeds were planted well before that, you know. There can be problems when there are lots of claimants mixed with uncertainty, especially when uncertainty can be fabricated. And by that, I mean, like how the Maesters are our source for a lot of what we know on Cregan, and it, it's filtered through their own bias. It may not be as accurate. So George left a lot of this open for now. You can see how rich it is, though. It's extremely rich. It's extremely deep. The soil he's planted is full of nutrients, and the Narrative plants that will grow from this are strong, even if you know we don't get them for a while or the sourcing is different. 
He doesn't have to lay a lot of detail for the groundwork to be strong. The detail comes later. Like a lot of the topics we cover, there will be a day when it's worth revisiting. Thanks to these gaps being filled in, this context being added, blood and fire would be a huge one to fill in a lot more of this. He should be in most of the book, half of it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, because it'll go from 130 yeah. till about like 135, 136 till 283. Yeah, he'll be in about half of it. <laughs> That'd be great. Can't wait. But whatever the future brings for this fandom, we'll be there. One last note I had, no idea where to place because it's not dated. But it works pretty well as a mystery footnote, a good thing to leave things on. A certain Maester Kennet was at Winterfell at some point during Lord Cregan's reign. He studied the bones and barrows and graves of the first men, and that included the discovery, or perhaps rediscovery, of giant's bones among them. The book he wrote was called Passages of the Dead. That's a pick up one. <laughs> yeah, it is. You're right. <laughs> it's, like it's actually very good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's crypts and tunnels, passages of the dead. Passing to the afterlife. Name, the written, yeah, and the written word passages. Yeah, that's pretty good. Anyway. Passages. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. It's like a, it's actually a, a pun on a few levels. It's very clever in my in my book. Good for Maester Kennet. Yeah. <laughs> so was this controversial? Like this book? In the North, I mean, I don't know if Northerners are too keen on dudes digging around in old graves. I don't know if that would be a popular thing. But Cregan allowed it, so I wonder why. I wonder if he thought there was information to be gleaned. What was he curious about? Did he specifically ask for this? Or, or did the maester just say, hey, I want to study this? And Cregan's like, yeah, go for it, bro. <laughs> or was Cregan actually interested in the results? Or perhaps he even commissioned the study in the first place? Worse, though, think of Egret's claim that searching old tombs for the Horn of Winter unleashed quote-unquote shades on the world. Foreshadowing, or did something similar happen here? I mean, the others weren't unleashed in graves of the first men of yeah. the barrows. You know, that's, that's south of the wall by a, a long way. That's not the point. But it, it is relevant to that. It is related to that. It's, it's a reminder that at the very least, there are graves all over the North, whether that's meant to be symbolic foreshadowing or a little of both, there could be just consequences implied for disturbing these old bones. Yeah, they may not have finished their passages yet. <laughs> okay, folks, that is our episode. Let's have a trivia answer for y'all. The oh. question again was, what title is held by the person Cersei learned the definition of Valonqar from? Their name was in this episode. And that name was Septa Serenella. That's right. Septa Serenella. It's a rare time that no one guessed it. Mm, that was a pretty hard one. That was one of the most obscure but the ones. The closest people got was like a maester or a septon. Yeah. But that one, they said septa. No one said septa. They said septa. No, mm-hmm. Yep. Mm. And that was only a guess and they were like still contemplating. Should be, so, yeah. should, people should have maybe realized that Cersei would be more likely to talk to a septa than a septon. Yeah. A little yeah, girl at her age. Yeah. 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 But that was very tough. I kind of didn't expect. I figured there's a good chance no one would get that one. But that's part of the fun. I'll make them hard sometimes. Make them... Well, I never make them easy. I'll make them less hard sometimes. <laughs> Next week, a free city of Kohor, a city of blood magic, a city of Valyrian steel, a city where the Unsullied came to fame, even though they don't originate there. A city once sacked by the Golden Company. 
Lots to say there. Positioned in the deep, dark forest of Kohor. Should be a lot of fun. A lot of world building in that episode. And we will see you then. Also mentioned in this episode, if you want to stay immersed in the history of Westeros, the Crypts of Winterfell is a great one for this topic. So is the Hour of the Wolf, if you really want to stay with Cregan. And of course, the Both Under the Dragons episodes keep you well-versed in how Stark. The first one covers the period of AC 1 to AC 50. The second one picks right up where it left off, going from 51 to 129. So lots of material there. That's over six hours of Starky goodness there for you. And of course, we have plenty of other topics that have more to do with the Starks or nothing to do with the Starks. Take your pick and enjoy. Thanks to anyone who supports us on Patreon or Spotify. Thanks to Nina for the notes and the great takes. We always discuss a lot of these things ahead of time. Helps me get my thoughts in order. Joey, Jesse, and Bran, thanks to y'all for the music, both intro, outro, and various forms. We've had a lot of different takes on our intro music. It's so great to have. What a blessing. Michael Klarfeld, a shout out to you, our friend. Maps that you see behind us almost every episode are his doing. You can get them from claredox.de. That's with a K and an X. <laughs> oh, yeah. You can find uh-huh. the spelling in the description. Yes. Thanks as well to Michael for the original, for our other video intro as well. I've got so many video intros and music intros to, to shout out. The intro you see today is the one Michael did. That's right. And we'll see you all next week for more. You know what to do. In the meantime, I highly encourage, as always, you to Valar Reredus. us. <laughs> <laughs>